Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Adele Diamond, who is Professor of Developmental Cognitive Neuroscience at the University of British Columbia and Head of the Program in Developmental Cognitive Neuroscience at UBC. Uh, Professor Diamond's specialty is executive functions, which depend on the brain's prefrontal cortex and interrelated neural regions. Welcome, Adele. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with uh, one of your recent uh, review articles uh, entitled Review of the Evidence on and Fundamental Questions About Efforts to Improve Executive Functions, Including Working Memory. Um, before, we, before we get to the details, Adele, what exactly is uh, executive functions? Uh, what, what are things to be considered to be uh, important there? Okay, great question. So executive functions is really um, a family of things. It's not one thing. And the three core executive functions are inhibitory control, working memory, and cognitive flexibility. Inhibitory control includes things like self-control, like not blurting out the first thing that comes to mind, thinking before you speak or act, not giving into temptation. And also inhibitory control includes selective attention, inhibiting distractions. Right. Um, working memory is holding information in mind and working with it or playing with it, like relating one idea to another or relating what you're hearing now to something you learned earlier, thinking about the future. Um, and cognitive flexibility is being able to think outside the box, see things from a different perspective, switch from doing things one way to another way. Mm -hmm. And from those higher level executive functions are built, like problem solving, reasoning, and planning. Right. And, and so uh, um, if we look at it, um, and I don't know if you think, think about it this way, but uh, from a hardware and a software um, a perspective, the, the hardware that we know is involved in this uh, is the prefrontal cortex, right? And other related regions, yep. And other related regions, uh, but, but, but largely prefrontal cortex, is that fair? 
no. Prefrontal cortex is the kingpin. Yeah. But it certainly couldn't do it on its own. It has to be the circuit. Okay. Okay. So, um, so, so from a hardware perspective, uh, clearly that there has to be difference, right? Even before we learn anything, we teach anything, or, or the brain picks up information experience, uh, there has to be differences, uh, perhaps in specialization and capabilities. I would imagine of that region, right? I'm not exactly sure what you're getting at, but different regions of prefrontal specialize in different subsets of executive function. Yeah. Um, is what, that what I was, you're getting at? Yeah. So what I was, uh, maybe you can, you can uh, tell me if this is not right. What I was, uh, what I was hitting at is the idea that people could be different uh, even without any reinforcement in that region. And so how they, how they look at problems and how they would do anything uh, from a hardware perspective is different. Um, that is not true? Or, or do you think everybody's sort of given the same, you know, same basic stuff? Uh, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. Um, we know that people will see things differently and react differently. But whether that's because their brain started out differently to begin with, or whether it's because of differential experience, it's not clear. Okay. So, so in the review article, you talk about you know, a variety, um, variety of approaches, computerized and non-computerized cognitive training, you say neurofeedback, school programs, physical activities, mindfulness practices, and miscellaneous approaches variety of approaches to, um, to, to, to look at what the impacts could be on these functions, right? Yes. And, and what did you find? Well, we were very surprised by several of the findings. First, we found that um, computerized cognitive training wasn't as effective as non-computerized cognitive training. And neither of those were as effective as the best school programs. Yeah. And the best way to improve executive functions from the data is mindfulness activities that involve movement, like Tai Chi or Qigong. Um, other, sitting, sitting mindfulness isn't bad, but the uh, mindfulness with movement is much better than anything else. And we never expected that. It's just what came out of the data. Now, there are less studies of mindfulness activities involving movement. So it could be that it looks good because the initial findings all look good, but maybe on replication it won't hold up. We don't know. Right. So, so what do we know about sort of the evolutionary basis for this? Um, so Homo sapiens... Uh, early on, um, uh, this would have been a pretty important thing for them to survive, I would imagine, right? Yes, it's important for just about every aspect of life. And so, so, so as we evolve um, and get into the modern context, uh, are we finding that, you know, sort of what we required 50,000 years ago, uh, you know, it's quite different from, from what we need now. So do we see some sort of mismatch uh, of skills and expectations there? 
Well, we certainly see that with young children in school, especially young boys. We expect them to sit like little college students far too often. And that's completely inappropriate for their brains and their developmental stage. Ch young children need to move. They need to act. They, they need to do things through movement. They're not built for sitting down and listening to somebody lecture at them, even if it's just a 15 minute lecture. Um, and so a lot of little boys are told they're bad kids. They're <laughs> scolded, you know, they're suspended and their self-esteem really suffers. And that's a shame because they're just normal little boys. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we, we would have learned uh, by moving. Moving was a, a requirement really to, to stay, uh, stay alive. Right. And we would have learned um, as we did things. Uh, but education today, so this has a lot of implications for how we set up to educate kids right from uh, right from preschool. Yes. In fact, at any age, we learn better by doing than by just listening. Right. You, you hear yeah. a lecture and it sounds all clear and you say, well, that's a perfect lecture. And you go to try to implement it and you realize, wait a minute, I didn't think about this and I didn't get that. You, you really learn it when you have to use it. And too often in school, it's just about the abstract. It's just about listening to the lecture or reading the book. And really to learn a concept or a skill, you need to use it. We don't do that enough in school, and we should. Yeah. The, the related downside of this, uh, let me just make a statement, and you can correct me if you don't agree with it. The related downside is that... Uh, you know, how we score students, um, what we actually uh, uh, reinforce in students is the ability to, uh, to, to really, um, I should say, just memorize things and do and, and become very good test takers. Yes, yes. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the tests yeah. rarely assess executive function. Right. Multiple choice tests don't assess reasoning or problem solving or creativity. They assess, do you remember the facts that we taught you? Right. In a, in a world of Google, actually, there is no value in remembering facts. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's not bad to know information, but um, we put too much emphasis on that. We need better ways to assess the things we say we care about like creativity and problem solving and reasoning. So, so the process of learning uh, has become more and more important. Uh, but on the other hand, the education system seem to be sort of stagnant. I don't think uh, we have changed anything yet. Unfortunately, mainstream education has stayed quite static. There are other um, smaller um, parts of education, like Montessori education, which yeah. really in, uh, instantiates a lot of the principles that I think are most important. It's very active. You work on what you're interested in. There are no tests. There's no homework. Um, uh, it's a joyful learning. Yeah, I know even high school might be a bit too late for this, but if you were to redesign how we do things in high school and college, what, what will it look like, um, you know, to get the higher levels of EF improvement? Well, first of all, I would have it more problem-based. 
because yeah. you learn something when you need it. So if the teacher tells me like how to do differential equations or geometry or whatever, it doesn't really stay with me unless I need it for something I want to do. So I would do a lot more problem-based learning where the students get to discover for themselves and use the skills. And then I would have a lot more of the subjects that we consider non-academic, the subjects we consider enrichment, which I think is a real shame. I would have more art, more physical activity, more music. I would have shop. All of these are wonderful for training the executive functions, for training thinking, and you do it in context where the children enjoy what they're doing. And we learn more and get more done when we're enjoying what we're doing. Unfortunately, right, right. people think you have to be miserable to be doing something serious. And it's not true. <laughs> yeah, you know, there has been a lot of focus on STEM education um, in the US and, and obviously a lot of the Asian countries have always been focused on it. Uh, but the downside of STEM in this context is that, you know, for instance, we were talking about philosophy in another podcast. Um, philosophy is not something that a um, lot of STEM students uh, really do, right? Yes. It's a shame that we have everything so compartmentalized because you yeah. can seamlessly blend in philosophy and science and history and, and, and have it really be exciting for the students. Yeah, and like you said, the, the process of learning, the ability to reason, the ability to take a problem that you haven't seen and come up with a different way of solving it, uh, it is really the only high value skill um, for, for the next generation. You know, uh, the idea that, you know, you, you graduate college and you go work for XYZ company and you just do things for 30 years and you retire. Uh, we don't have that anymore. In fact, if you look forward, one could argue there are not going to be any jobs, any conventional jobs. So, so the skills are going to be more in the area of creative skills. And increasingly, I think there's a mismatch between what universities are trying to do and what companies might might require in the future. Yes, I think so. Uh, I went to a small college called Swarthmore. There yeah. were only <laughs> a little over a thousand students at the college. And right. so our classes typically had 10 or 12 students. And we were encouraged to problem solve. We were encouraged to reason. We were encouraged to argue and discuss. And, uh, and that was fantastic. It was great preparation. After Swarthmore, I couldn't believe how easy Harvard was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it could also work another way. And, uh, you know, if, if you go to a, a high STEM, uh, you know, sort of college, um, and then you go to university, you may have a lot of, uh, you know, STEM type information and you can sail through as well. Uh, but that is on the education side. The real question remains to be what you do when you graduate. Yes. Also, um, the, the events of last week really highlight that we don't only need to train the intellect. We need to train values. We need to train morals. We need to help children grow up to be people who care about others, who don't just focus on themselves, who have compassion for others, who... Um, want to help others. Um, 
there's too much focus just on training intellectual skills. But you can use intellectual skills for the good or for the bad. Yeah, so that, that's an interesting thing to, uh, I, I want to get your perspective on this. So you have another paper, uh, a more recent paper on stress and, and how stress impacts uh, EF uh, functions. Um, and, and so, you know, if you have a leader of a country uh, who is stressed out, let's say, uh, one could reasonably assume that that person's EF functions are not not particularly Absolutely. great. Absolutely. Right? Executive functions suffer first and suffer the most if you're stressed or sad or lonely. And so hmm. uh, the time of the pandemic is a time when um, we're stressed and many of us are lonely. Um, so it's a time when we need to appreciate that, uh, that our own executive functions and other people's might not be so good. For example, a child who's feeling stressed might act out, might seem like he's a bad child when he's just stressed. And he's not trying to be bad. He just can't control himself as well because he's so stressed. Yeah, so so it has a lot of implications. So you know, senior decision makers, whether it's it's an organization or or um, in societal context, if if their jobs are very stressful, um, they they may be in a they may not be in a position to make good decisions. Exactly. Right? Could you could you? Yeah. I was right? just going to say that unfortunately, a lot of companies and a lot of graduate programs think that they need yeah. to stress people to get the best performance because they've heard <laughs> that you, you show the best higher cognitive function when you're not calm, but when you're a bit stressed. That comes right. from Yerkes Dodson in 1903. But really, <laughs> that had never been studied with people. And when we and other researchers have started to study it with people, for most people, most of the time, even very mild stress impairs executive function. Mm. Um, from the, the stress paper, it also, um, what is the mechanics? Uh, why is that stress has this kind of an effect on executive function? Um, dopamine is an important neurotransmitter in many regions of the brain, including prefrontal. Um, uh, stress increases the level of dopamine in prefrontal. Often it can increase it so much that it basically floods prefrontal and takes it offline. Um, what we were looking at is people who have different baseline levels of dopamine in prefrontal because of their genotype. So yeah. we, we hypothesized that people who had too little dopamine at baseline might perform better when they're stressed. And people who have a more optimal level of dopamine and prefrontal at baseline might look worse when they're mildly stressed. And what we and others mm -hmm. had found is that basically almost everybody looks worse when they're stressed. Two other labs tried it and they couldn't find any benefit to anyone. We used a much yeah. milder stressor and we found a benefit to that one genotype. But it says that it's a very narrow bandwidth, a very narrow range of stress that will help these people. And this is a minority of the population. Most people are not, their executive functions are not helped when they're stressed. 
Now, the kind of stress we looked at was social evaluative stress, worrying about how you look in the eyes of other people, worrying about how they are, are evaluating you. So I'm not, I don't know if our results bear upon other kinds of stress. And also, I wanted to mention that there's a difference between being excited and aroused because you're so looking forward to a new challenge. You are, you are so happy and being stressed or anxious. Both of them are arousal states, but one is a positive state and one is a negative state. So, so what are the symptoms of excess dopamine in, in the prefrontal cortex? What are, the symptoms are that the functions of prefrontal cortex suffer. So your working memory isn't as good. Your self-control isn't as good. Your reasoning isn't as good. You know, think about when you're stressed. You, you know, often we can't think as clearly or exercise as good self-control. I, I tell people when I'm stressed, I reach for the chocolate. <laughs> yeah, I, I was wondering uh, if this seems sort of a bad outcome. I, I was, was wondering if there is any sort of evolutionary reason why we ended up here. Well, I don't think we were built to be under this chronic stress. You know, when we evolved, it was mostly to deal with imminent dangers, like some animal about to attack you not the chronic yeah. stress that you feel day in and day out at your job or worrying about putting enough food on the table or being able to pay rent. Um, that, that's a newer occurrence and it's not something our systems evolved to be able to handle. And so we need ways to be able to reduce our stress like mindfulness activities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, could you talk a bit about that? So that's a very fascinating and sort of unexpected finding, right? So uh, there's only uh, certain activities um, where you have movements, but you have mindfulness, sort of a holistic view of things, uh, seems to have great, great benefits, but not just exercising or just right. moving. So, fact, so, so um, yeah. we found the worst results for exercise or just moving. Aerobic, aerobic activity or um, resistance training, weightlifting showed the worst results. But I think that's a bit of an artifact of how the studies were done. Because it's also true that people who are the most physically fit and the most physically active often show the best executive function. So when people try interventions, that involve aerobic exercise or resistance training. They're not improving executive function, but people who have who, who are active and have good physical fitness have good executive functions. So I think part of the problem is that when we do the studies, first of all, we randomly assign people. So I could randomly yeah. assign you to something that you have no interest in doing. Well, you're not going to get as much benefit from it if you didn't really want to do it in the first place. And then often the researchers have people do decontextualized activities like learning to dribble a basketball, but you never get to pay basketball. And there's less motivation for learning abstract skills than there is for learning a skill that's embedded in a sport that you want to play. So I think right. the, the poor findings probably have something to do with the way the studies were done. 
But in any case, the evidence is that right now, physical activity seems to be the least effective way of improving executive functions. Now, physical activity is great for a lot of other reasons. It's great for physical fitness. It's great for sleep. It's great for reducing stress. There are all kinds of reasons to exercise, but one of them right now doesn't seem to be executive function. And so exercising for the sake of exercising is one thing, but if you're doing something that you really enjoy doing, uh, it has more of an overall beneficial effect, both on the brain as well as on the body. Right. I think part of that is that you're going to be willing to push yourself more to improve. You're going to be willing to spend more time at it if you enjoy it. If it's something that you're just doing because you think it would be good for you or your parents said you should do it, then you don't put as much into it. Right, right. We'll take a, we'll take a quick break, Adal. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about this and uh, possibly school programs okay. and other ideas. Okay, I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back. Adele, uh, we were talking about executive functions and what one could do to improve them. Uh, And it seems like uh, just exercise, just physical activity, although it might have some beneficial effect on health, doesn't seem to have a lot of beneficial effects on uh, on these functions. Uh, But on the other hand, if you're playing something that you really like, uh, other mindful practices that involve movement, they all seem to have more beneficial effects. Uh, before we uh, go into some of the school programs that you talked about, I want to touch on, um, in the paper, you talk about a cognitive training method for improving EFs called CogMed. Um, could you talk a bit about what that is and what, what you found from it? Yes, CogMed is computerized um, way of training executive function that seems to be more effective than any other of the computerized methods. It trains working memory specifically, and it's composed of a lot of little games. Um, And you improve on what you train in CogMed, but just like everything else, it doesn't generalize. Mm. You don't improve on things that didn't train in CogMed, even to the extent that if you train visual spatial working memory, You don't improve on verbal working memory. Um, uh, But CogMed does show more benefits than other computerized methods like task switching or NBAC um, or some of the commercial programs. Um, uh, But there's one aspect of CogMed that often isn't mentioned in the scientific reports. And that is in order to get certified to administer CogMed, you have to commit to be to mentoring and getting training in being a mentor. And there's some studies that now suggest that the mentoring component of CogMed may be what's carrying the benefits rather than the computerized games that they're so proud of. 
<laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, this, this sort of falls in the same uh, bucket. You know, if we train on something, um, reading books, uh, playing games or solving specific problems uh, and then test on those problems, we might get higher scores. But as you say, they don't generalize. They don't actually provide a, a lasting effect in any way, right? So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. If you want to get benefit to a lot of different things, you need to train on a lot of different things. And I think that's what school programs do. It's yeah. just the nature of being at school that you're not just going to train um, uh, exercising self-regulation, but you're also going to train problem solving. You're going to train working memory. If it's a good school program. Right. Yeah. So if we were to make an impact on this, it has to be early, I would imagine. Right. That is where the highest flexibility exists. And so, um, you know, uh, preschool, uh, primary school um, yep. time frame. Yep. Yeah, um, I know that uh, Finland uh, and, and some of the advanced uh, educational systems have moved away from sort of prescriptive education and, and uh, gone into more of letting the student design the curriculum. Uh, now, that is, uh, that is trying to tackle one, aspects, one aspect of this, but that is, that is not going to be sufficient, right? It seems to me that you have to really think uh, how a school might look like, uh, right, you know, from, from foundationally, how it might look like. Yes, and um, Montessori educators have really put a lot of thought into this, into the architecture, into everything. So they have child-sized doors and um, just everything about it has been thought through. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm very impressed with Montessori, but Montessori was never trademarked or copyrighted. So anybody can claim to be doing Montessori. Tomorrow you could put a sign up and say Montessori school. <laughs> um, so there's a big difference in quality among Montessori programs. There's the real Montessori and people who claim they're Montessori. Right. Do we have any data uh, control for quality? Uh, of course, uh, you know, to, to say that that type of early intervention has positive impact? Yes, we have that for Montessori and we have that for Tools of the Mind. Both of them show much better benefits than regular mainstream schooling. I mean, have you followed that through all the way when, you know, when those kids actually get to uh, get to university or even to the to, to jobs? No, we haven't. They've done that for one program. I'm blanking on the name. It was a play-based preschool program. Um, and James Heckman has been following it. And they have the children now into their 40s. But that's the only program where, where students have been followed into adulthood. Hmm. Um, if you look at countries across the world, um, there, there is, I would imagine, quite a bit of variation uh, on, on how they are dealing with education. Um, do you know of countries that are, you know, really sort of thinking through this in a more systematic way? Uh, I don't think it's the U.S. No. Um, Finland, 
Um, the UK is looking at really revamping its education. The Netherlands. Um, uh, it's interesting that in Finland, children don't start school until they're seven. So they don't start learning to read until they're seven. Whereas the United States, we get apoplectic if they're not reading by the time they're six. In Finland, they don't start till seven, but by the time they're in fourth grade, they're outperforming children in every other country in the world. Mm. Uh, given that, um, that our ability to actually influence the brain, it, it's a lot higher early. Um, so, so how does it, you know, sort of, uh, you know, clearly a prescriptive type uh, intervention early on would be not beneficial, but just delaying um, education may not be that beneficial either, right? Right. I think one of the best things it does is to reduce stress hmm. because we're biologically predisposed to acquire oral language, but we don't have any biological predisposition to acquire reading or writing because it's too new. So some children can read when they're very young, four or five, but other children can't read until they're seven or eight. Now that's normal individual variation. Like some child walks at six months of age and another child doesn't walk till 15 months of age. By the time they're two, you can't tell who was the early walker. Um, but we get very concerned in North America when a child isn't reading by, by six years. And th then the children feel all the stress. They feel like I'm stupid, I'm not capable. They feel bad about themselves. And that's what's really destructive. So right. I would introduce reading early, but I wouldn't require reading early. I would emphasize oral language. Oral language is the basis for being a good reader later. Oral mm -hmm. reading predicts reading at third grade. Oral language at three predicts reading in third grade. So right. we need to be talking with the children and listening to them and encouraging them to talk. There are studies that show that although reading is beneficial, what's most beneficial is the conversation that occurs in the course of the reading, the back and forth, not just talking to the child, but listening to the child and responding to the child, the back and forth. That's what's driving a lot of the cognitive development and the language development. So we just need to take time to enjoy our children, listen to them and talk with them. Right. The other dimension uh, is competition. Um, so, so you know, we might think that North America is, is, is bad, but then we can look at data from, let's say, Japan or China. Um, Absolutely. You know. <laughs> Absolutely. East Asia it just stresses those kids up the wazoos. With, with competition and tests and everything is gonna be determined by the time they graduate high school and their family's reputation on the line and their mother's reputation is on the line. It's not just about themselves. There's so much pressure on these kids. So in fact, when I was talking about the different genotypes, the genotype that's associated with better executive function at baseline is also associated with being more fragile in the face of stress. And the other genotype, which is associated with not quite such good executive function at baseline, is associated with being more resilient in the face of stress, being able to handle stress better. Now, if you come from Europe, 
you're equally likely to have one version of the other, 50-50. But if you come from East Asia, you're twice as likely to have the version that helps you handle stress better. Handle the, handle the stress better? Yes, so that they're more resilient in the face of stress. They're not as stressed out by stress. Oh, okay. So, so the, the methodologies that they follow, um, they're more, more focused on, you know, sort of um, uh, competition and, and high stress. Uh, is it because uh, on average they find students who can do that, who can handle it? Yes, I think um, it's hard to know cause and effect, whether they evolved to have more of the gene that helps you handle stress because their culture was so stressful or whether they seem to have a way to handle stress. And so their culture uh, sort of picked up on that and then was able to stress them more. We don't know. But um, uh, uh, it's interesting in Norway, they yeah. do phenomenally well in the Winter Olympics. They get so many medals, often more medals than any other country, even though they're a relatively small country with a small population. And you ask the Norwegians why. And they say, you know, we discourage competition when the children are young. We don't keep yeah. score when they play sports until they're 13 years old. Hmm. We just yeah. want them to do it for the fun of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how does it, um, I, I know that, you know, from a, from an economic and education perspective, they do pretty well as well. So the, there doesn't seem to be a trade-off in any way, at least on aggregate. Um, it seems that if you're from Europe, from the West, stress is usually detrimental for you doing well. Um, and we have this notion that we have to test the children, otherwise they won't learn the material. But Montessori shows that's not true. Montessori doesn't test the kids. And the children learn the material even better than the kids in mainstream. So you don't have to have tests. Right, right. The, the issue though, um, so, so it seems to me that we cannot take a subset and on an experiment because if the system hasn't changed, if, if uh, measurements and performance tracking is going to stay status quo, uh, that, that subset that presumably has a better education may end up, um, end up not necessarily performing that well on those exactly. standardized tests. Exactly, statement. exactly, yeah. yep. So we may be losing a lot of the most creative and brilliant people because they're not good test takers. Right, right. And so it seems to me, you know, it's a binary sort of a design problem. Either you go all the way, uh, it doesn't necessarily helpful, is helpful to, to take a subset and, and, and do it or, or do it in an incremental fashion because we can never get there because whatever we do incrementally, those students are going to be, um, you know, they're going to have a handicap in the status quo uh, testing. Right, we uh, need testing. to change testing. It's absolutely critical, but it's harder to test um, creativity, problem solving and reasoning 
often you need uh, essay exams, and that's laborious to uh, grade. You can't have a machine graded. Um, but we need better ways to test. You're absolutely right, because what, get what gets assessed is what gets emphasized. Great. Um, is Canada any different from the United States on this dimension? It is different, but unfortunately, it's too influenced by the U.S. So we have less pressure for testing, but we have more testing that I think is healthy. Um, we emphasize play more in kindergarten, but the U.S. emphasis on academics in kindergarten has crept in more and more. So hmm. there's more emphasis on joy. There's more emphasis on problem solving. There's more emphasis on hands-on activity and cultivating, excuse me, compassion and good civic um, responsibility. But, but it's very influenced by the U.S. Right, right. And uh, typically, the U.S. knows everything at all. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so in conclusion, um, you know, so if if you were to make, so let's say, three changes um, uh, in the education system, um, what would be the, the most important three changes we can make in the next five to ten years? Um. We need to help children develop good self-regulation and self-control early so that then they can work on their own and the teacher doesn't have to control the class from the front. So instead of the teacher being the center of attention, the teacher can be on the side and observing the children. And then the children can work at their own pace. They can work on different things at the same time. I can work on math. You can work on reading. and um, the teacher can see who, who's ready to move on, who needs help. You can get individualized instruction there once the children have enough self-regulation to be able to work on their own. Um, I think um, things we need to give children more reason to learn something, have them need to use it in what they're doing so that then they're motivated to learn it. There's a reason to learn it. Um, to, to especially to do it for something they care about. Like, let's say they want to um, help their school in some way, mm, make an addition or start a garden or whatever. If, if what right. they're doing in class could be related to that, they'll pay much more attention to what's happening in class. And then, as you mentioned, we need to change our methods of evaluation. Right, right. And, and you would do, so these things are, um, uh, clearly, the you know having the teacher on the side observing the class more relevant for early education, uh, but but the evaluation methods perhaps more relevant for uh, late education. Do you, do you see something um, like in the university or even graduate school level that we are missing? Well, UBC has about forty thousand students. So they'll have classes yeah. of 300 or 600. Um, and there's no very little opportunity for discussion. There's very little opportunity for using the material. And they're multiple choice tests. Very, there's less essay exams. So I think that is a real problem. But there are many universities that aren't as big. 
For example, many of the best universities in the U.S. only have 5,000 undergraduates, like Harvard or Yale or Stanford. And that's a much more manageable number to be able for the students to have personal relationships with the teachers, for them to be able to work in their labs, for them to be able to um, talk in class and have discussions. So I think the big universities, I think um, going more online, so you're just reading the material and handing in the assignments is a shame. I think it's much better to have uh, uh, um, a, a few enough people in class so that you can have a real discussion. You can, the teachers and the students can really get to know each other um, and the students can work with each other easier. Right. Yeah, I mean, these are all doable things um, if we focus on it. And, um, you know, it's almost needs to be done because um, the output of universities is, is essentially mismatched to the skills that companies, companies are even currently seeking. And so, you know, somebody has to start this somewhere. And uh, like, like we discussed, I think it has to be a systemic effect, not for subsets. The smaller class sizes in the U.S., the, the public universities tend yes. to be larger than the private yes. schools. So that has some, you know, economic issues. There yes, too. but you get a worse education, I think, in the big universities in general because you just can't get the individual attention. You just can't have the luxury of having students um, uh, have discussions and do creative problem solving. So I think it's a shame. What companies want really is a lot, revolves a lot around executive functions. They want you to be able to problem solve. They want you to be able to create it, be creative, think outside the box, but they also want you to have social and emotional skills like being able to collaborate, being able to get along with others, being able to inspire others to want to work under you. So again, I think we shouldn't just focus on the intellect. Right, right. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for spending time. With Thank you. you. I enjoyed it. Bye-bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.